Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. How do we understand persecution rightly? On today's program, we'll examine this subject with Dr. John Newfeld in our current series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. So let's go back to the Bible as we turn in our text to Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, and listen to this message called The Joy of Being Treated Like Jesus. There is somewhat of a debate as to whether there are eight or nine Beatitudes. Well, some argue that Jesus speaks a blessing first to the righteous and then to his followers. But in truth, the last two Beatitudes speak of the very same reality. So let's read them. Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's begin by noticing how odd Jesus' Sermon on the Mount really sounds. He begins his most famous sermon ever preached by turning the entire world of expectations on its head. We think the people who are in the most favored position imaginable are those who have all the world's advantages, money, power, attractiveness, status, fame, and the respect of the watching world. I mean, this is the list of the world's who's who, the people who appear in magazines who capture the world's attention. The stars, either in sports or entertainment, the intellectual giants of our day, politicians whose words create policy and move nations, the people who, when they speak, everyone stops to listen. But if we had really thought about it, we would have expected Jesus to say exactly what he says. If he has been preaching this word, the time has come to repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then we might expect that the entire order of things was about to be overthrown. All the kingdoms of this earth will one day lie in ruins, and the kingdom of heaven will endure for all eternity. If that happens, then all the people who seem so important by this world's standards will soon be of no consequence whatsoever. Movie stars, athletes, musical performers, singers and entertainers, thinkers and presidents will soon be of no consequence. In the light of the kingdom of heaven, they are not in the most favored position at all. Indeed, they might have made the fatal error of attaching their future to that which is destined to perish. Who would admire the man or woman who managed to procure a ticket on the Titanic? Who would envy the man or woman appointed to a high political office in the last several months of the Third Reich? Who would admire the man or woman who put millions of dollars into technology shares days before the dot-com crash in the early part of this century? See, whenever you attach your future to that which is doomed, you are not in a favored position at all. You're not blessed. You're deluded. See, when Jesus began his famous Sermon on the Mount, he was announcing the beginning of his kingdom, a kingdom that seemed small and insignificant in the present hour. Yet it came with such power that in the end, it would rule all the nations. Anyone who belongs to his kingdom belongs to a future that will never pass away. They are in the most favored position imaginable. But not in the immediate as Jesus' disciples were to learn, and as he would tell them in John 15, verse 20, where he would say, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I think this needs to be emphasized, especially at a time when there are those in our culture 
pseudo-Christians who argue that the Christian faith guarantees we will be wealthy and healthy in this world. But in truth, the Bible promises even guarantees that Christians will suffer the displeasure of this world. Now, at its basic level, Jesus was encouraging his followers to believe that they will not win the battle over this world through political means or the force of arms. Remember, he taught us that in the present hour, we were to pay taxes to Caesar and thus acknowledge the right of the nations of this earth to have authority over us. As the rest of the New Testament develops from the teaching of Jesus, Christians are told, and I'm reading from Romans 13, that every believer is to be subject to the governing authorities, for they have been instituted by God, and that includes the authorities who belong to this world's order that is surely passing away. It seems to me, therefore, that there is in the teaching of Jesus a rejection of two extreme positions. See, the first is what has sometimes been called dominion theology. See, dominion theology believes that in the present era, that is, in this time when the old era of sin and death remains, in this time period before the second coming of Jesus, when the kingdoms of this earth still rule, that the followers of Jesus, at least so it's argued, will gain dominion over them and rule this present earth in Christ's name now. The Bible will become the basis for earthly governments in this era, and the church will take dominion or rulership here and now. Now, in the Middle Ages, when the church and state were married, this kind of thinking led to persecution and cruel abuses of power. An inquisition was developed. And in that case, the so-called followers of Jesus were not being persecuted for righteousness. sake. They were out there persecuting anyone who would not conform to their standards of righteousness. Jews and others were made enemies of Christ, and strong laws were put into place to emphasize the advancement of the kingdom of Christ over all enemies. Now, how they got that from the teaching of Jesus, his teaching of peacemaking and loving your enemies and and living the life of one who is meek, well, that's a story in and of itself. Now, I, for my part, find it problematic when Christians try to use the force of law to enforce the teachings of Christ. Jesus would have none of that. He told Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world, and therefore, his followers were not forming into a military to enforce his demands. See, when Jesus promised that his followers would be persecuted, he meant to portray them precisely as he does in the Sermon on the Mount. He portrayed them as gentle and loving and merciful and peacemakers who are more than aware of their own spiritual poverty. Yes, they will inherit the earth, but they must wait patiently for the kingdom of heaven to be consummated at the end of time. But on the other hand, the other extreme is the thinking that all that Christians will ever be is but a persecuted lot on the edges or the fringes of society and having no impact on the kingdoms of this world. Jesus spoke against that as well. He called his followers the light of the world and the salt of the earth. The presence of the believers in this world would have a profound impact and would in many ways bring transformation to the kingdoms of this world. See, one need only study the impact of the early church on the ancient Roman practice of abandoning of children and even on abortion. See, over history, Christianity was the primary force to bring an end to slavery. Studies have been done to show how Christianity has transformed attitudes regarding the poor, 
to universal literacy, the arts, the sciences. I mean, we could go on and on. The presence of the sons and daughters of the kingdom of heaven would be positive in the present hour, would have a transforming effect. And yet, Jesus did promise persecution. Implicit in this is the idea that the presence of the kingdom of heaven in this world as it awaits its final consummation, brings about an uneasy relationship between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. Let's look at some of the other New Testament passages that promise persecution. Acts 14, 21-22 records the end of Paul's first missionary journey. It's been a tumultuous experience, one in which he and his missionary band have tasted the first thing of persecution, which included a stoning. And here's what the text says. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. See, there is in the ministry of Paul both success, in which there is a great openness to the gospel, many are accepting Christ, and at the same time an aggressive reaction against the gospel. Paul indicates that this was to be expected, and he thinks that because he has learned that from Jesus. Or let's move forward to Philippians chapter 1. Paul is now in prison in Rome, and he's writing to the, the Philippian church, which he planted. The church is feeling the sting of rejection from the wider culture for a number of reasons. I mean, one reason must have been that it was a cultural requirement for citizens in that city to pour out libations in a temple and confess that Caesar was Lord. And Christians could not do that. See, Christians, although wanting to submit to their government, could not participate at all levels. And so helping the church to understand their experience, Paul writes, and I'm quoting from Philippians 1.29, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. When Paul says it's been granted to you, he means it's a privilege. He sounds so much like Jesus there. Jesus said, blessed are you when you are persecuted. And Paul says, this has been graciously granted to you from the hand of Christ. More when we come back. In a country where most of us do not suffer direct persecution for our faith, Jesus' words here might seem a bit distant at first. But as we study the word, we discover how it is an essential part of what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom here on earth. It might look different for believers in Canada than elsewhere in the world, but as we live out the Beatitudes, Jesus says we will encounter some form of persecution. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld continues to explain how, in fact, suffering for our faith is one of the greatest blessings we can receive. Have you listened to the latest podcast from In Doubt? Just months ago, our Young Adults Ministry launched a brand new weekly podcast featuring a variety of engaging and relevant themes for the current generation. If you know young men and women who'd be interested, be sure to spread the word. The Indoubt podcast can be accessed online at indoubt.ca, where you'll also find biblical articles, videos, and much more. So check it out today. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. In 2 Timothy 3.12, just before his execution by Roman authorities, Paul would write, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse. 1 Peter 4, 12-14 contains the Apostle Peter's teaching to the early church. He writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. See, interestingly enough, Peter includes not just the idea that Christians might be legally prosecuted, but for him, suffering includes the person who is merely insulted for the name of Christ. He seems to feel that the wider culture will not easily adapt to the gospel, but that does not always necessarily mean legal or prosecutorial persecution. See, the writer of Hebrews seems to indicate the same thing. I'm, I'm reading from Hebrews 12, 3-4. He writes, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The idea here is that it might come, and it might not come. At least, it hasn't come up till now. Nonetheless, whatever hostility exists, whether legal or in a culture that protects our rights, there continues to exist in the world a hostility to the kingdom of heaven. One more example before we return to the Sermon on the Mount. One of the graphic images presented to us in the book of Revelation is the image of the great prostitute. She represents Babylon, and Babylon represents all that is evil and vile about the kingdoms of this earth. In Revelation 17, verse 2, we are told that the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with this prostitute, and consequently, the whole earth has become drunk with her wine. She is pictured clothed in all the finery of this world, and she is portrayed as the mother of all the earth's abominations, all the earth's horrors, and all her sins. And then in Revelation 17, verse 6, we come upon a horrifying truth. John writes, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. If we were to put all these verses together, we gain a picture. The kingdoms of this earth, although appointed by God to keep evil at bay, have drunk of evil themselves. Hatred of God, abuse of power, a love of darkness haunts all human civilizations. No human society is righteous, no, not one. Even as human beings are corrupted by sin, so is every single human culture, and so is our country. The coming of the kingdom of heaven in the person of Jesus who heals the sick and casts out demons is the news that the kingdoms of this earth are destined to pass away. This is greeted as unwelcome news. The kingdoms of this earth, Jew and Gentile together, conspired to kill the king and nailed him to a cross. But Jesus broke the bonds of death and through that announced that whatever the kingdoms of this earth do, they will not destroy this seemingly small kingdom that has been placed among them. And once having persecuted the king and have failed, they now turn to persecute his subjects. Notice that in verse 11, the persecution is because of righteousness. In the Bible, righteousness is always a description of God himself. To be righteous is to act in accordance with what God demands. It is to submit ourselves to him and to his commands. Now, please notice, there is no blessing if the persecution occurs because of unchristlike behavior. When people mock televangelists, for instance, for their money-centered lifestyles or their immoral sexual misconduct, this is not the blessedness of what Christ speaks. 
See, when we live lives that are inconsistent with the righteous Christ, and then when people point out our hypocrisy, we do well not to claim Matthew 5.11. The almost universal disdain that so many have for a perverse form of Christianity, which centers on greed and power, and not on giving oneself for the poor, a lifestyle centered on self rather than the meek and the merciful, when this is mocked, don't claim it's all for Jesus. You know, I recently read an article of a female televangelist who's getting married for the third time to a rock star who was marrying her and he was getting married for the fourth time. Now, this televangelist had taken over from the last pastor who had died of an overdose from cocaine and heroin. And we wonder why non-Christians shake their head and mock. This is not the persecution Jesus spoke of. What he calls blessed is persecution for righteousness' sake. Now to verses 11 and 12. The first thing we notice is that for the first time in the Beatitudes, there's a change in the language. Up till now, the language has been in the third person. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn and so forth. All the way through to blessed are those who are persecuted. Everything Jesus has said is in the third person, but now things become personal, and the language switches to the second person. He now speaks directly to his servants, those who follow him. Blessed are you, he says. He wants his persecuted followers to hear a personal word from their king. See, the kind of persecution Jesus has in mind is found in many forms. First, he speaks of those who revile you. To revile means to criticize someone abusively. It means to insult them. It is to be belittled and mocked. Second, Jesus now mentions persecution, and the word seems to speak of an organized opposition, perhaps something that is instituted by law. And then third, Jesus speaks of those who utter evil against you falsely, and that's called slander. You know, the interesting thing about slander is that it is presented as if it were the truth. Those of you who know the history of the early church will remember that very early on, Christians were accused of sponsoring orgies. I mean, what else could they mean by their love feasts? And they were also accused of cannibalism. I mean, what else could they mean when they spoke of eating of the flesh and drinking of the blood of the Son of Man? And then they were accused of atheism. I mean, how else can you interpret their refusal to believe in the Roman and the Greek gods? And in consequence, they were called enemies of the human race. And all of that was slander. More than mocking, it was telling a story long enough and often enough until everyone believed it and everyone began to think they were the problem and they had to be stopped. Now, in any context, whether it be illegal to be a follower of Jesus or whether it's simply the subject of mockery, every child of God knows what it is to be excluded and abusively criticized and slandered and suffer character assassination or, in some cases, prosecuted by law for the sake of Christ. And that's the point. This is happening for no other reason than that we have taken our stance to be identified with Jesus. But why is that a blessing? And Jesus explains why. Verse 12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And think, for instance, of Isaiah. In Isaiah 30, verse 10, Isaiah is told by the people, and I quote, Give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. See, the real point here is that identification with Jesus puts us on a collision course with this world. Daniel Doriani, commenting on this passage, explains why. He says, the world blesses the rich 
Jesus blesses the poor. The world blesses the carefree. Jesus blesses those who mourn over evil. The world blesses the assertive and the aggressive, and Jesus blesses the meek and the gentle. The world blesses those who can get what they want, and Jesus blesses those who are hungry and thirsty after righteousness. The world prizes the trouble-free life, and Jesus tells his disciples to rejoice in persecution. See, all the values of the kingdom of heaven are at odds with every other culture on the face of this earth, and that includes the one we live in today. When the world hates us, we prove that we truly have embraced a kingdom whose values are unlike all of the values of the kingdoms of this world. We have left the Titanic with its pride and luxury, and we have embraced the poverty of the kingdom that will never pass away. Rejoice and be glad. John, the uh, title of your message today was The Joy in Being Treated Like Jesus. Uh, I tell you, when I think about how Jesus was treated, I'm not sure the word joy is the first thing that comes to mind. So help me define that again. Yeah, I think on an experiential level, of course, you know, I mean, Jesus is told, uh, is, is explained to us as a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering. So I don't think I want to make it, you know, an easy thing for Jesus to have been treated the way that he was. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So, you know, you do get a sense that Jesus had his eye always on the prize at the end of the day. And maybe that's our starting point as well. So when we identify with Jesus, it may feel harsh, but there is a joy that looks forward to what is coming in the end. Today, we might begin to reflect on our own lives and ask ourselves, am I living in such a distinct way from the world? Reflecting Jesus and the kingdom of light? If so, Jesus says we are blessed. I hope that this study has encouraged you in your walk with God. Perhaps you're encountering some form of persecution in your life, or you've struggled to understand the purpose of it. May these words not only encourage, but empower us to be bold in our witness for Christ in this world, whether in the workplace, at home, or wherever we're challenged in our faith. Be sure to join us as we begin week two of our series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. In John 17, 17, Jesus prays to the Father saying, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As Jesus' followers, we're called to grow daily in our walk with Him. And the primary way that we do this is through studying and applying His Word in our lives. At Back to the Bible Canada, these words also reflect the heart of our mission, to help as many as we can to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Did you know that you can play a direct part in what we do every day? One way is through joining our Partner to Tell campaign and supporting us on a monthly basis. Becoming a monthly partner is not only convenient, but you'll make a real difference in sustaining this program on the air and through so many other mediums. Our goal for 2016 is to add another 120 monthly partners to get us to the goal of 500 in total. So would you help us get there? Thanks to so many of you, we actually exceeded our 2015 goal of 100 partners. We need your support. So please become one partner today. 
To sign up, call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.